In the 47 years since Elizabeth Smither published her first poetry collection, Here Come the Clouds, she's won numerous awards and was our Poet Laureate in the early 2000s. Her latest collection, My American Chair, invites us to roam the world with her through a series of memorable moments and encounters. But there are also many poems about home, ageing, mortality, friendship and family. Ruby's my granddaughter and on this occasion I was trying to get her to go to bed. (laughs) So it's just called Nighttime Words to Ruby. I hold you in my arms and say, beautiful girl, beautiful girl, you do not want to go to bed. Instead, you say you're instructed to lie between your mother and father like a bolster and wait for them to slide inside. I see the fresh sheets and the pillows, the throw laid diagonally across, the quiet dark against the curtains, the hush of a lamp, intimacy after someone's wedding party. Your bunk seems so high, aloof as a tower, and later when I check on you, you've half disrobed and put on your sleep mask. The duvet is slewed across your body. Beautiful girl, beautiful girl in your tower, not far from the ceiling which you could reach. I am bringing something I do not know down to you in my embrace, an angel's wingtip the first air movement of a visitation of coming and forever grace. Beautiful girl, beautiful girl. Elizabeth, I was wondering, with many of your poems in this collection being of moments from overseas, has this been in part a a lockdown collection, you know, when so many people have been thinking about experiences overseas when they can't travel? Um, no, no, not really. Um, what happened was that um, a publisher in America of a little press called Mad Hat um, asked a professor um, from the university in, in Australia, Deakin, to choose three poets to, do, to have a sort of Australasian input into his press. So what I did, I had to put the poetry collection together quickly in a way so I think the poems have sort of a lot of interconnection Um, I had about half a collection ready and then it was a case of adding more of the poems I was working on so there's probably a sort of a tightness about it all I think not so much overseas travel um, though of course I did work on it when the COVID restrictions were on and that was perhaps a helpful thing in a way I was reading um, a Soviet string called Tet, and I must say there are themes through music as a theme, trees and gardens I found a theme, um, health I found a theme, but a Soviet string called Tet, I found it very moving. I am assuming it's from experience, and I never should with poets, because yes. it's not always. <laughs> it was a long time ago, we used to have concerts in New Plymouth in a hall above the library, and you know people would sit on these rigid chairs, and I remember these Soviet string quartets. They were so serious, and um, and they never smiled. Even at the end, when people were applauding wildly, they just kept that look ahead. And people often wondered, you know, should we invite them out for dinner, or are, are they, you know, are they being looked after properly? But there, there seemed to be no real mixing with the audience. I don't imagine it's perhaps like that today, but it was. Uh, it was a strange sort of experience. It was moving. They they sort of, sort of spoke to the audience through the music and the very limited facial gestures, no, no sort of wild bowing or, or movement like that. Right next to that poem is the euphonium, which is a, which is a really delightful <laughs> and entirely different kind of poem. Again, was that from a, a moment scene? 
years. That that was an experience of my youngest grandchild. He was quite young and he went round to some relatives' place. They have a lovely place in the country. He darted into the into this living room or sitting room and came out clutching a large euphonium and put it in the back of the car. And he said, I'm keeping this. <laughs> and it looked like a small child carrying this great instrument, which he couldn't play, of course. He could made a few notes on it, I think. But um, and they said, Yes, he can have it. It was amazing seeing this um uh, this child with the euphonium and I was at a concert recently where four euphoniums came on at the end to play something and they were just wonderful they were all shiny and they looked like great big pieces of beef or something and just a, it was just an amazingly funny thing to see this child speeding out of the house carrying the euphonium. Now you wouldn't have been the French speaking or or the lady attempting to speak French who got himself into a bit of trouble and the, uh, no. the joke of Sapeur Pompier. <laughs> no, that's I heard someone told me that, that the, the woman had <laughs> tried to speak French to, to impress her daughters and, and instead of getting a courier car, she got a, a reply from the fire brigade who, who played a joke on her. <laughs> but um, yes, sometimes you just hear really funny things that people tell you and you think this this will make a wonderful, funny poem if I can manage to do it. You were saying you're bringing together current poems and former poems, Elizabeth, for this. It must have been interesting for you. I mentioned some themes, you know, and trees are one, blossoming trees. You've got, you know, five blossoming trees, one poem next to it blossoms. And then you've got the greening of the oaks uh, on the other page um, and the pruners and the apple trees. Lots of trees in your your collection. (laughs) Yes, I've got a little plane tree outside my room where I write and I've got a bird feeder on on it, a sort of a plank of wood. And it's fascinating to watch the birds and the the way they arrange their sort of society. I had a tui once that was hanging upside down eating an apple, which I'd cut the top off. And um, but, But I must say that the order of the poems is not really my doing. It's the doing of Elizabeth Caffin, who has the most wonderful sense of how poems connect to each other. And and I I don't possess that at all. I can see the order inside a poem, but whenever I've tried to put them in order myself, I've made a total mess of it. And uh, so I'm always so grateful that Elizabeth will do that for me. Well, it, it really does flow quite beautifully. I thought I'd ask you about the title poem, My American Chair. What's the story behind that? Oh, well, that was a big chair. I've got a big desk. It's one of those desks that two clerks would have had in America, and they was cut in half. So one clerk sat on one side and one on the other, and they would have had a chair like that, something like this. I bought it at an auction once, and I had to fight an American woman off to get it, and it used to swivel round and round, but the swivel eventually got damaged by the the grandchildren going round and round on it. And I realised later that it was really designed for someone with great big long legs like Abraham Lincoln and my back was getting sore so I actually you know got rid of it but um, I did love it as a chair and it was uh, and it was sort of like a poem about regret of having to get rid of it. Family features here we mentioned before your grandson and this lovely little poem called Two Pregnant Daughters-in-Law which is just yes. a really sweet moment and when you when you do write about family do you instantly share the work with them and what's their response? No, I don't don't normally. I sometimes might say I've written a poem about you or something. And I have written in the past a poem I for my daughter Sarah, I've written a little book years ago called The Sarah Train. And there's quite a few poems about um, grandchildren and uh, 
No, um, I just sort of keep that part of my life sort of private from them, though sometimes they, I will say I've written a poem about you, Ruby, or something like that, and they seem quite pleased. But <laughs> no, I don't, I don't sort of really show the work at all much to people while I'm working on it. And uh, maybe later I will perhaps show them something. Health comes into the equation here, and possibly your shortest poem, I think, Hip Replacement Surgery. I really love it. How you prefer your silver joint <laughs> when you're having a look at <laughs> at the image, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. It's um, it's fascinating, really. It's uh, and later on, you read things that happen in surgery. I've just been reading a book about a surgeon, um, which was reviewed on the national program, and saying that during hip operations, the air is full of sort of bone dust and, and spattering blood. So it's quite quite a brutal sort of thing. But you you have no idea what they're actually doing, which is probably a good thing. The, the accompanying poem in the recovery room I found really interesting. I've never been under anaesthetic, so I, I haven't had that experience. But this is, I would have thought it was quite frightening, but, but you talk about this as being cocoon-like. You know, before you go into surgery, they wrap you up and you're very warm. They sort of warm up the blankets or sheets and you're wrapped up because the, the, I think someone said to me, the surgeon likes you to be nice and warm. And when you come out, the same thing happens. You're sort of wrapped up like a like a cocoon, really. It was luxurious being sort of wrapped up. And I think, I mean, that's the sort of thing you do with a little child. You wrap them up warmly, but an adult doesn't doesn't get that sort of thing done. And it's, uh, it was a lovely feeling. And, and I remember and they watch you, of course, until you become conscious again. And uh, it was a lovely sort of feeling, suddenly waking up and finding they were there and remembering one of the nurses saying that cap doesn't become you and taking it off. But it's, it is a lovely feeling, actually. You tickled me entirely with Scylla writing and the little footnote. Scylla McQueen <laughs> and Elizabeth Smither are the two shortest New Zealand poets laureate, which is absolutely I delightful. I think we're getting shorter, unfortunately. Yes, we, we have a lot in common and we love being together. And um, I like writing poems for Scylla. I've just written one about oysters because we both love oysters and saying that we must go out and get half a dozen oysters and um, yes so so we send each other poems from time to time. Towards the end of the collection there are some very thoughtful poems about death and the poem The Death Clean, I've actually read it quite a few times, that this idea of wanting to give things away before you pass, we say to, mm. to, to press gifts into the hands of, of those that you know but going through and assessing your yes. the things that you've collected over a lifetime. It, I mean, I, I understand the logic of it. It's probably the way my brain would hmm. think, but it's I still find it sad. It is sad, and you you love things in your home, don't you? Some people I've noticed, um, when they get older, they suddenly say, "No more presents, please. No, don't give me anything more." More, they've got enough stuff. They've got enough saucepans and dishes, and you know, knickknacks and things. And they say, "I'm trying to have a bit of a clean up." But I think it's a matter of choice, really. I mean, a lot of us have so many books and things, and we're going to keep them with us, I think, as long as we can. And also poetry reading with women poets. You know, I mean, you've done a lot of this over the time, uh, Elizabeth, you mm. know, reading poetry out. Is that something that you enjoy? Yes, I do, I do really. I mean, you you feel that you're not you're not an actress with the beautiful voice of an actress, a trained voice. But actually, poet that people are interested in listening to the poetry, even if they read in a fumbling fashion, because I think they sense sense they're, they're in touch with the, the creator of the thing, and 
what I love most is when you're reading and you, you see suddenly the audience is attentive. I just did a reading recently to a group of uh, Rotary in New Plymouth, just a small group of men, and we had a meal first, and then I made them sit 